we're going through a series at the moment that we began a few weeks ago and we're calling it One Another. And basically we went through the New Testament and said, let's have a look at all the different one another commandments that seem to pop up in the New Testament. And let me tell you, you're going to run out of fingers and toes pretty quickly when it comes to counting how many one another commands you're going to find in the New Testament. And where we find ourselves this week is in the book of James. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. James chapter 5. And I want to begin today by reading verses 13 through 18. Here's what James has to say for us. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in uh, 1998, I believe that the world was graced with the single best film of all time. It's a movie that Robin Williams was in. Uh, It's a movie titled Patch Adams. Anyone seen Patch Adams? It is definitely my all-time favourite film. And what I find uh, fascinating about this particular film, it is based on a true story. It's based on the story of a man by the name of Hunter Adams, or Hunter Patch Adams. Patch was his nickname. And Patch had a pretty um, traumatic life, so much so that he went down a particularly dark pathway and tried to end his own life. And so he ends up uh, admitting himself into a mental institution. But what he finds is, as he starts engaging with some of the patients there on the um, psychiatric ward, he finds he's actually able to help them through humour. And you see these incredible interactions as he actually starts to help these patients more than the doctors ever have. And what you see is he actually enjoys it so much. He has so much compassion on the sick. He actually uh, takes himself out of this mental institution and he goes into uh, Harvard Medical School. And so you find this entire movie, you've got this really peculiar fellow uh, in Harvard Medical School. All of his fellow students are just kind of glued to the desk you know, memorising physiology and anatomy, but Patch is going, oh, I might do a little bit of that, but first and foremost, I want to spend some time with sick people. And so what he does, he kind of breaks the rules a little bit, and he just spends the entire movie hanging out with sick people. He hangs out in the paediatric ward, you know, dressed like a clown and making them laugh and feel better. He uh, goes to some of the elderly folk and sees how they're doing sometimes on, you know, the last days of their life. And um, some of the interactions are quite funny. There's Probably my favourite scene of all time, there's a, an elderly gentleman who's suffering as, in the final days of his life and he's saying, man, I, I just wish I had one last safari. I, I used to do a bit of hunting in my youth and I just, I can't now, but I wish I just got one last opportunity to do that, you know? So Patch is just oozing with compassion for this man. So what he does is he grabs a couple of friends of his and they start blowing up balloons and tying them in the shape of animals, right? And they sneak into his... Uh, ward at night, they kind of let one of the desk nurses know just to say there's going to be a bit of a ruckus. They hand him a BB gun type device and they wake him up in the middle of the night and he starts shooting these balloons and this old man is just having the time of his 
life. Uh, I love what Patch says he's like, you know, when he's done shooting all the animals. He says, oh, congratulations, Jackie, you've done it all. You've basically nailed every balloon from here to Timbuktu. <laughs> and so this is what Patch does throughout the entire movie. It is a movie that just oozes with compassion. In fact, um, a while ago, I was a physiotherapist, and one of the big motivators for me to study physio and even had a desire to do medicine for a little while was actually this particular film, alongside my obsession with the old TV show ER. Uh, so I'm a big fan uh, of this particular movie. But there's one man in history who far exceeds Patch Adams when it comes to having compassion on the sick. And that man's name is Jesus. You see, you, as much as I often try and do it, you can't read the gospel accounts soberly and not stumble across the fact that Jesus was often moved with compassion on the sick. And it moved him so much, it often moved him to tears, and he very often healed them. In Luke 18, we read about a man crying out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and some people in the crowd around him like, Hey, mate, can you shut that up? Jesus has got other things to do. Can you just keep the ruckus down? He's not interested. What does Jesus do? Nah, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pause. Bring the man to me. And he heals him. See, whether it was a distressed parent fearing the death of a child, a, a man riddled with leprosy, or a cripple on a mat, Jesus always moved towards sick people. That was his disposition. I love the way Zach Eswine described it. He said, In Jesus, the sick have a voice. Their call resembles nothing of nuisance or bother. Uh, many years ago, as I said, I was a physiotherapist and I've seen firsthand the kind of nuisance and bother that some people perceive the sick to be. Uh, one of my placements was in a nursing home where you've got some suffering, uh, sick, elderly people and it's very well documented that a very large number of them are neglected. I'll never forget one particular woman we went to visit. She'd been left in bed for so long with pillows under her knees she developed what's called a fixed flexion deformity. She literally couldn't straighten her legs anymore, both of them. And I kind of started inquiring to the nurses and fellow staff. I'm like, how did, how did that happen? What's wrong with her knees? And they said, got to be honest, mate, she's just been left here. There's actually nothing wrong with them. She's just been in bed for so long that she literally can't move her knees anymore. And I cannot get the quivering on her lips out of my mind. It killed me. And so Jesus, when he sees situations like that, he says, nah, not on my watch, not in my church. <laughs> See, in the church of Jesus Christ, no one slips through the cracks. He doesn't leave soldiers on the battlefield. He wants people to be such of a part of such an intimate, close-knit community that if you find yourself like that woman... If you find yourself bedridden with illness, if a family member, a child is bedridden with illness, that you won't be left alone. And so in light of our current series, this One Another series, we need to ask the question, how should the local church respond when one of our brothers and sisters in Christ finds themselves sick? You see, Jesus had compassion on the sick, and if we're going to follow in like manner as our Lord, well, we've got to have compassion on the sick as well. Now, there might be a, just a tad pushback at this point because I keep saying, how should the local church respond when someone gets sick? I mean, someone might say, well, 
can't I just do this as like an individual Christian? Like, I can pray for the sick, can't I? Yeah, yes, you can. I, I believe you can. I would, I would free you to do that. But what James is talking about here is a particular category of response of how the local church body should move towards those in our congregation who find themselves sick. So let me show you why I think this is a, a congregation command here in James 5. If you look there in James, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. You see, James begins here by echoing a sort of similar idea that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians, where we're to be a people who rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. That's, that's the kind of thing James is getting at here. But when James gives us his version of the command, he kind of he drops a few hints as to the context of those particular prayers. You see, from the very beginning, James assumes some kind of local gathering, some sort of belonging and participation in the local church. You see, James here, he knows nothing of churchless Christianity. If you're doing Lone Ranger Christianity, there is no one among you to know whether or not they're sick. And furthermore, James, he assumes really the existence of those people in your life called the elders of the church. He says that these situations require a particular kind of leadership. Well, who are the elders? Well, these are the group of men who are elected in the church, having been tested in their character and doctrine, who are guarded with, who are to guard the flock and shepherd them and care for them in situations like these. Now, the question might arise at this point, okay, there's a particular protocol that James is talking about here, so what kind of sickness does James have in mind here? Is he saying that every time we mildly sprain our ankle or get a little bit of a head cold, we've got to summon the elders? I mean, We'd have to get a few cars for the church to make that happen, I'm sure, especially in winter. I mean, what kind of sickness is James talking about here? Well, though I'm sure uh, the elders of this church or hopefully no church would um, dismiss you if you ask for prayer for anything, let's have a look at a couple of the clues that James gives us as to the nature of the prayer. What kind of sickness does James have in mind here? He says to call for the elders, let them pray over him, and the Lord will raise him up. You see, the sickness that James seems to have in mind is the kind of thing that would inhibit you from travel. Uh, they're unable to get to the local gathering where the elders probably would be, so they have to call for them, come visit me where I'm currently laid. And the imagery that we have here of them praying over them is the person is laying supine or prone, probably on a sick bed or a sick mat if you're in the first century, and they're standing over the sickbed praying for them and anointing them with oil. They have to be called upon. So though we can ask people for prayer for any kind of ailment, there seems to be a particular category of ailment that James has in mind here. So for in our context, this would be a home visit or even a hospital visit. Where we would call upon elders to come and pray for us. Now just briefly on the oil, why are they using that? Well, there's a few debates. Um, first of all, I would say it's not medicinal. Uh, oil can be helpful for some medical conditions, absolutely, but it wouldn't cure every disease, so I don't think we're looking at anything medicinal here. Uh, nor do I think there's a new sacrament being taught here. Uh, as one author put it, this is about the healing of those who are living and not the salvation of the dying. So I don't believe there's anything sacramental happening on here. But what we do have in James 5 is what you might call a sickness response protocol for the local church. 
But we hear the word protocol and we kind of go, how does that link up with compassion? We don't seem to be able to put those two things in the same sentence too often. We think protocol and we think policies and procedures manual at work. It doesn't usually bring about the word compassion. But in Jesus' mind, he has established his church with protocols to ensure the best possible care of his people. I mean, we mentioned the elders of the church a moment ago. There are protocols in place for how we appoint men like that. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Well, then even in um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's basically a protocol. It almost reads like a criteria sheet on how you're supposed to care for a widow. It's, it's an interesting thing you could stumble upon in your devotions. Like, what did you read this morning? I think I read a criteria sheet. There are parts of your New Testament that give you instructions on how Jesus wants to best care for his flock. You see, there's a bit of a, um, a tragedy that can happen in economics. They call it the tragedy of the commons, right? Let me ask you, which lawns are always the last to get mowed? Any ideas? What was that? Lawn contractor. Lawn contractor. <laughs> Council lawns, often. Why is that? Well, because there's a sense in which they don't belong to anybody. No one's individually responsible for them. It's a, and so what happens is the lawns that and property that tends to get neglected the most, economists will say, is the stuff that's not individually owned. And so a same thing can happen in the local church. If no one is responsible, then neglect can often follow. And Jesus says, no, not on my watch. I'm going to set these things up in my church so that we can best care for those who are suffering. This is what Kevin DeYoung had to say. He said, the church, as the elect people of God, is both organism and organization. The church is a breathing, growing, maturing, living thing. It is also comprised of a certain order, with institutional norms, doctrinal standards, and defined rituals. The two aspects of the church, organism and organization, must not be played off against each other, for both are grounded in the operations of the glorified head of the church through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an interesting little omission that James kind of drops through here that kind of might put us off at first reading. He says that if someone has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's James getting at here? Well, what he's actually doing, he's drawing something of a link between sin and sickness. He's saying that in some sense, they bear some connection to each other. Now, the second I say that, I'm sure we get a little bit nervous, right? This is going to need some pretty instant qualification. So here's some ways we need to think about how sin and sickness relate in the Bible. Well, first and foremost, sin is, sorry, sickness is a result of sin in the sense that in Genesis 3, creation came under the curse. Ever since the curse of sin, we have been suffering sickness and disease and ultimately death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. That includes eternal death, but of course, physical death. Ever since that moment in in, uh, Genesis 3, when we ate of the fruit, we were subject to death and decay. So there is, a, there is a broad general sense, yes, in which sin and sickness are directly linked. But having said that, Jesus' disciples took that general principle and they thought they could apply that to every single scenario. They thought, well, hang on a second, if, if, sin and, if sickness entered the world through sin, then that must mean if someone's sick, they must have some particular sin in their life. And you see that play out in the ministry of Jesus. If you look at uh, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, have a look at this little encounter that we find. 
It says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they're using that broad principle and trying to apply it specifically. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's Jesus doing here? He's correcting their theology. Yes, there is a link between sin and sickness, but that doesn't mean you can apply it individually in every case. So, God forbid we ever carry on like that at the project, okay? Where you hear, oh, Jaden's got the flu. <laughs> What's he done this time? You know, there must be some hidden unrepentance in there somewhere, you know? Um, let me tell you, there were, there were churches I grew up in where you'd be nervous to walk into the prayer meetings. I had one mate, he was coughing in a prayer meeting. The guy next to him starts going, that's it, mate, cough the demons out. I've, I've seen this, all right? We need to get the link correct. But having said that, there are occasions, and my emphasis here is on occasions, when sin can manifest itself physically, where you can actually draw a direct link between a particular sin and a particular illness. It does happen. It's not common, but it does happen. For example, if you look in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 28 to 30, okay, so this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, They're a little bit of a messy bunch, like most churches. Uh, But they're doing some particularly curious things, right? So they're taking the communion wine and they're basically getting drunk on it. There's all sorts of disorderly worship going on here. They're using the gifts really awkwardly. And Paul's basically spending these letters correcting how they conduct themselves at the Lord's table. And look at what um, Paul has to say to them there in these verses. He says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgments on himself. And here's the kicker. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Did you see that? He's not appealing to the broad link anymore. He's saying, no, 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 specific sin, specific illness. We see it again in the ministry of Jesus. In John 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, which to the Pharisees was a bit of a no-no. You didn't do that. So he He comes up to this man, miraculously heals him, and then he kind of just smoke bombs to make sure he doesn't get in any trouble. And then he catches up with this man earlier. He was described as an invalid, which might mean that he was paralyzed or lame. And he catches up with him a bit later in the temple. Look what Jesus says to him. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus had the balance right. He could see this man and go, yep, cause and effect, direct link here, sin no more that nothing worse may come upon you. But then four chapters later in John 9, he can see a blind man and go, no, nothing sinister here. Wasn't him, wasn't his parents, nothing sinister. See, this is a balance that we need to get right. And as I said before, this is something that when abused, it... um, can be quite hurtful. I mentioned the um, cough the demons out story before. But when it's used correctly, when we are discerning about this, there can actually be some really beautiful stories of restoration that come about. Um, Many years ago, uh, when I was playing Aussie Rules, I had a lot of hip injuries. It it wasn't a lot of fun. So I uh, subscribed to the services of a strength and conditioning coach in Southport on the Gold Coast. And in order to get to training on time, I'd have to get up at five o'clock 
which meant that I could listen to the radio ministry of a minister by the name of, Man, <clears throat> a minister by the name of Chuck Swindoll. And he was preaching on this particular text one day. And he describes that there was one particular man in his church who called the elders to come and pray for him as he was laying in hospital. And as the, um, the elders gathered around him, they anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord, and they just started praying for him. Mid-prayer, this man stops them. and says, just, ah, ah, can you please stop praying? <laughs> stop. Um, I've been unfaithful with my wife. He confessed his sin, there was genuine repentance, and as far as I remember from that radio program, the man was healed. Do you see that what James is describing here is not just a kind of, there's the person, there's the illness, let's go after the illness. No, 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 we're approaching and moving towards sick people holistically. We're asking, how are you doing overarchingly? Now, I don't know the exact pathophysiology of how this man's particular sin resulted in his particular illness. I don't know. I'm, I'm not that medically trained, but sometimes there is a direct cause and effect link. So what we need to do as a church is as we move towards people who are sick, or even when we're not sick, we move towards people as a holistic person. This is exactly what Jesus did. He was always pursuing the state of a person's heart as much as he was going after the illness. You see, though we can celebrate the miraculous signs of the kingdom, we're about to get to that more in a moment, that should always be paired with the gospel of the kingdom. You can't separate those two. Signs of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom always go together. And the gospel of the kingdom is a message that is always going to point you to a person, namely King Jesus. So what we have here is not just a a response protocol, though it is that. It gives us a general principle that as God's people, we are to be a people who pray for one another and confess our sins to one another. I, uh, I take out private health insurance myself. Um, there's been a few times in my life where I've been pretty thankful that it's there, especially when I had back surgery. Um, there is a sense in which you could say that part of the health cover, spiritually and in some sense physically for a local church, is confessing our sins to one another. And all the people from Restoration Intensive said amen. <laughs> and no more. <laughs> At least for a couple of days, let me recover. Yeah. Look what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen to this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So, let's be a people who pray for and confess our sins to one another. And I'm there will certainly be wise counsel in certain situations as we go about that. So if you need wise counsel on that, please uh, come seek us out. So, There's a little phrase in here that's caused some hiccups throughout recent church history, and that is that phrase, the prayer of faith. What do we do with that phrase, the prayer of faith? You see, as we read James here, it seems as though on first reading, he's giving us absolute certainty 
that the outcome of our prayer is going to be positive. I mean, just look at the language. He says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. He seems to be speaking in absolute terms, right? But are we to take this procedure, this protocol, and say that we're going to have a 100% success guaranteed outcome just by doing this? Is that what James is teaching us, that we have the best possible health care right here? The answer, I believe, is no. No. Now, you might push back and say, well, well, hang on, why not? Why won't we get 100% success with this? I mean, isn't healing in the atonement? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that by His stripes we are healed? Didn't Jesus say in John 14 that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, why not get 100% success? You see, sadly, some of us use that phrase, in Jesus' name or in the name of the Lord, and kind of use it like an incantation, like we've been to Hogwarts and we want to just use a spell to get the outcome. That's not what it means when we say, in Jesus' name. They're not magic words. I love what Douglas Moo said. He said, to ask in Jesus' name means not simply to utter His name, but to take into account his will. And the truth is, sometimes Jesus will look upon one of his suffering sick children and graciously heal them. I pray we see that. <laughs> but sometimes he will equally graciously approach them and say, Son, my grace is sufficient for you. That is the tension that we live between. Now, it is true. Healing is in the atonement. But just because something's in the atonement doesn't mean we get all of it now, for example, the Bible says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for, an hour, for our iniquities. Does that mean I can walk around and say I'm completely sin-free right now? No. No, I've, I've been declared justified. I am right, in right standing before Almighty God, but let's be honest, I'm still waging war on sin. I'm sure that's the case for all of us here, whether we admit it, admit it or not. But one day I will be sin-free. Sometimes I get the benefits of the atonement now, I get a down payment of the Holy Spirit now, and I'll receive sinless perfection in the future. And the same can be said with healing. You see, our salvation is an already not yet reality. The kingdom of God is an already not yet reality. You could say that with the first coming of Jesus, this was the inauguration of the kingdom, and with the second coming of Jesus, you have what's called the consummation of the kingdom. And in between those two comings, we're going to see some signs of the kingdom and our present darkness, this present evil age, in some sense, will still be upon us. We're going to see a mix of both. You see, I completely agree. Christians should have perfect health. I just disagree with the timing. I think our perfect health is future. I think sometimes what we do is we grab hold of future promises, future realities, future glories, and we try and bring a bit too much of it into the present. I agree, there will be some that's going to come into the present, the, the blind will see, the lame will walk, amen. But I don't think we get perfect health yet. I think that's something yet future. In fact, I think James himself is aware of this tension. We're reading the back end of James, but look at how James began, James chapter 1. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials of various kinds can include sickness. There is coming a day, (laughs) Revelation 21.4, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But until that day, I believe we're going to see a mix of both. We live between the already and the not yet. But here's the kicker. (laughs) Having said all of that, having laid down a couple of my, dare I say it, nervous foundations, what's James' emphasis here? What is James teaching us? He says, the prayer of faith will heal the sick, full stop. And to drive the point home, he points us to an Old Testament prophet. He says, look to Elijah. And we go, yeah, what, what, what good's that to me? He was a prophet, you know. Prophets were pretty holy dudes, right? Like, good on him. Elijah had some, you know, prayer success. Who's to say, I'll get that? But look at what he does in the same sentence. Uh, verse uh, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What does he mean by that? Elijah's no different to you and me. (laughs) Yeah, Elijah's described as a righteous man here, but if you're in Christ, can't the same be said of you? Have you not been declared righteous because of the cross work of Jesus? You didn't earn that righteousness. It was given to you freely as a gift. This is the good news of the gospel. So we can rightly paraphrase verse 16 there and say the prayer of a Christian has great power as it is working. I've got to be totally honest and maybe the band can come and join me. What James says here, I often forget. I'll confess, as I study this passage this week, I need a change in my theology. See, I need to move from a position that says God can heal to a position that says God does heal. And maybe there's others here today who, like me, we have not, simply because we ask not. We need to recognise what James is talking about here with a prayer of faith. And in that sense, rightly understood, I lack faith. I'm as guilty as anyone of what Paul calls quenching the Spirit. I was reading a book earlier this week it's called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. It's written by a man by the name of Jack Deere. And he was a, a former professor at a very renowned seminary known as Dallas Seminary. And they are, they are renowned for a couple of things, but one of them is what is called cessationism. So they say there's no more healing, no more miraculous gifts. That ended with the apostles, right? Well, let's just say this man, Jack Deere, had a change of heart and mind. He experienced some things and his theology changed. And one of the things I read this week, which was a punchy paragraph that really got at my heart, was this one here. Now, just a bit of a forewarning. I think he does maybe slightly demonize a couple of legitimate prayer offers here. So, but take the thrust of what he's saying. He says, if you haven't seen any truly miraculous healings, ask yourself how often you pray for these things. I'm not talking about the kind of ritualistic prayers where an absentee sick person's name is mentioned in a list with others in a Sunday service so that we can ask God to guide the doctor's hands, comfort the family, and let them know that all things work together for good. These kinds of prayers are frequently offered as a pastoral courtesy with no real expectation or anticipation that God will do a miracle. 
When I ask you how often you pray for miraculous healings, I'm asking you, how often do you go into a hospital room and pray for the sick and suffering to be miraculously healed? How often do you lay your hands on the sick in your church and pray for them? Most of the people I talk with who have never seen a miracle are people, by and large, who never take the trouble to go and lay their hands on sick people in believing prayer. Conversely, I have yet to find anyone who regularly lays hands on the sick in believing prayer who doesn't see at least some miraculous healings. James says that the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And we're not talking about word of faith, prayer of faith, kind of movement faith. This isn't some psychological certainty where we twist God's arm and demand healing. No, faith here, as Jack Deere put it, it is faith in his ability to heal and in his goodwill to heal. It is confidence that God loves his children and regularly heals them. Project Church, we might need more faith. I need more faith. I'm comforted today by those words, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray.